Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 12 through 23. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they ravage it, and it be made desolate so that no one may pass through because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, let a sword pass through the land, and I cut off from it man and beast, though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. Now, don't miss what's going on here, because we're going to start talking about something tonight that's going to go against something you've probably heard in Christian circles for a long, long time. In this passage, God says, if I've decided that I'm going to bring famine against the land, because that land has sinned against me by acting faithlessly, and if I've decided that I'm going to bring a famine that just removes from that land man and beast, even if Daniel and Job and Noah were in that land, it wouldn't stop what's going to happen. Now, they themselves would be spared because of their righteousness, but I will do what I'm going to do. Then he says, if I decide I'm going to send wild beasts to come and bring judgment on a land, even if those same three guys were in it, it wouldn't change anything. They themselves would be okay because of their righteousness, but it won't stop what I'm going to do. Then he says, if I decide to bring a sword or pestilence, which means disease. And then he goes on and says, how much more when I bring all four of these at the same time against a nation? Now, we're going to come back to that all four just a little bit. Go to Jeremiah chapter 15, though, because I want you to see. So before we really can dive into this, I want you to see what God said through Jeremiah to these same people. In Jeremiah chapter 15, look at verses 1 through 4. Remember, Jeremiah was prophesying to the people prior to Ezekiel and during some of the time of Ezekiel's prophesying. In Jeremiah chapter 15, look at verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, those who are for the sword to the sword, those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. I will point over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. 
So here a very similar thing is said through God, God through Jeremiah to the people of Israel. He said, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, I'm not changing my mind. The judgment's coming. And if the people ask you, Jeremiah, where will we go? You just tell them. <laughs> people are going to be killed to the sword. You're going to go to the sword. People are going to be taken into captivity. You're going to go into captivity. Thinking those are going to die by pestilence or whatever. Uh, that's where you're going. But doesn't that seem to go against a lot of the stuff we've been hearing over the years? How often have we heard in Christian circles, people quote 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and heal their land, forgive their sin and heal their land. Isn't that what God said in 2 Chronicles 7, 14? But doesn't hear he say that it, even if Moses prays and Samuel prays, it's not going to change anything. Even if Daniel, Job, and Noah were in the land, and I've decided judgment has come, it doesn't matter. Oh, they themselves will be spared. Well, how do we put this all together then? We gotta, that's why you've got to build your theology not on one verse, folks. If you go back to 2 Chronicles 7, 14, who were his people that he was talking about? Israel. And was he saying, if some of Israel prays, I'll spare them? If the nation turns... Yet we as Christians, unfortunately, have a tendency to try to take passages of Scripture that do not match up with the whole or take an interpretation of Scripture that doesn't match up with the whole of Scripture and try to build things up to the point that if we believe it and if we cry out and if we pray to God, He will spare our nation because we're His people. And if we call out to Him, He'll heal our land. And God says, I never made that promise. If you read the rest of my Bible, you'll find out that actually I've already said what's coming. And even if Christians pray, it's still going to come. Years ago, I was at this National Day of Prayer thing at a big church. They had all these pastors from the area come, and I started to get more and more grieved as we sat there because pastor after pastor from certain denominations would get up, and they were making declarations. We declare America a Christian nation. We declare that America is going to turn to God. We declare, and they even had these declarations up on the screen there at the front. So they had the congregation repeating the declarations with them. And it turned into this pep rally of America is going to turn to God because we declare it. Because if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and just pray and seek my face, then I'll spare America. Not what the Bible says. When God said 2 Chronicles 7, 14, he said it to the nation of Israel. And those were his people who were called by his name. And he said, if you guys will humble yourself and pray and turn from your sin and you call out to me, I will heal your land. I'll forgive your sin. But there comes a point, if you remember the conversation with Abraham and God, where God said, am I going to hide what I'm about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? Am I going to hide from Abraham, my friend, what I'm going to do? And he says, I'm not going to hide it from him. And so he told Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. I'm leaving you right now. I've just told you that Sarah a year from now is going to have a baby. But I'm actually heading now on to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy them because of their sin. And remember the conversation with Abraham and God? Well, God, would you destroy a whole city if there's righteous people? He says, if there's 50 righteous, I won't do it. But what if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 10? What did God say? There isn't. I've determined. I've determined. Here, Jeremiah, he says, even if Moses and Samuel were standing before me right now, it won't stop 
what I'm going to do. Now, that's very important because there have been times in the past where Moses and Samuel had stood before God and prayed on behalf of the people of Israel. You remember when God led the nation of Israel out of Egypt? They had been worshiping idols in Egypt, but God brought them out and he said, no more. I'm the only God. You'll have no other gods before me. And you're to worship me alone. And, and he said, I brought you out into the wilderness to worship me and to follow me and to walk with me. And as you know, what happened? Moses goes up on the mountain to spend some time with God, get the Ten Commandments. And he's gone for 40 days. And the people say, well, we don't know what happened to this Moses fellow. And they turned to Aaron and they said, make us a God that we can worship. And he made a golden calf. God looks down and sees what's going on. And he says to Moses, get out of the way, Moses. I'm going to kill them all. And start over with you. And Moses said, that wouldn't look good for you, God. Because everybody's heard about what you did in bringing them out of Egypt and drowning the Egyptians in the Red Sea. And if people have heard about what you've done, and if they all die in the wilderness, it looked like you weren't able to finish what you started. And God says, you know me well. And Moses interceded on behalf of the people of Israel, and God did not do what he said he would do. Can we just build a theology then from that one story where Moses interceded and say, if we intercede, God, no, you need to build your theology from the whole of Scripture. And God said, even if Moses and Samuel were standing before me right now, I've already determined the judgment is coming on the people of Israel because of what Manasseh did. By the way, does anybody know what Manasseh did? We studied it already. The idolatry was not only bad in the land, he did it in the temple itself sacrificing children to Molech in the temple. And that's why back here in Ezekiel, he says, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in the land, it's not going to stop it. And then he says, how much more when I send all four at the same time? He said, because if I decide to send sword or famine or pestilence or wild beast, if I decide to send these to bring a judgment on a nation... And I've determined that the judgment's coming to wipe them off that land. It doesn't matter who's praying. It's going to happen. But how much worse when I send all four? And I don't know if you've been following this yet or not. In our study of Ezekiel, we've been hearing all the things that God said he's going to do to Jerusalem. Does anybody remember? They're all four there. There was going to be the famine. Remember how people are going to be like fighting over bread, eating their children because they're starving. There was going to be disease, the pestilence. There was going to be the sword. There's going to be wild beasts, all four. But look at what he says in, in verse uh, 20. Go to verse 23. Actually, back up. Go to verse 22. But behold, some survivors will be left in it. This is in Jerusalem. Sons and daughters who will be brought out. That's the captivity. Remember Jack and Jeremiah? Where will we go? Well, some of you are going to the sword. Some of you are going to pestilence. Some of you are going to go into captivity. They're going to be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you'll be consoled for the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when they see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord. In other words, God says to Ezekiel, you tell him this. When I bring all four of these at the same time on Jerusalem, which is about to happen at that time, he said there's going to be some that escape. They're going to be brought out into captivity, and they're going to join you here in Babylon. And when you see the wickedness of these people, you'll realize I was right in doing what I did. And you'll be consoled by it. Because right now, you're grieved over what's going on in Jerusalem. Why, God, why? But when you see the people that survive, you'll understand 
why I did what I did. Now, for the sake of time, we won't go there, but I want you to write down in your notes and go read it later on, Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, because if you know a little bit about the history, after their 70 years of captivity in Babylon, God has them allowed to go back into the land. During the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra is involved in rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah, as you know from the book of Nehemiah, is rebuilding the walls. And as they're working to rebuild the Jerusalem, when you get to chapter 9, as the temple's being built, they find the book of the law and they read it. And they weep and they literally say, God, you were right in doing everything you did. All the acts you, you did, all the judgments you brought on Jerusalem, you were right for doing what you've done, which Ezekiel said they would do. But there's something here in chapter 14 of Ezekiel that we have to see before we go on to chapter 15. Look at verse 21. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence. Keep those in mind again. What are the four? Sword, famine, wild beast, plague, pestilence, disease. All right? Does anybody know? Hopefully you do because you sat through a revelation study that those four are coming again on the whole earth at the same time. Go to Revelation chapter 6. Now, don't hear me wrong as we turn here. I'm not saying that we should not pray for our country. I'm not saying that we should not pray for God to spare our country and to give us some of his grace <coughs> excuse me, before the final judgment that is coming. Because remember in, in, in uh, Ezekiel, sorry, Jeremiah chapter 29 in Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon, he said, look, build houses, plant crops, but pray for the welfare of the nation that you're in exile in because it'll be good for you and for them. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray. I'm saying you should not declare that if we pray, God won't bring judgment and he'll heal our land. That's not what the scripture teaches. And look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. This is in the first half of the tribulation period during the opening of the seals. And by the way, as we read this, who's opening the seals? The Lamb. Who's the Lamb? So who's doing this? Jesus. Verse 7, when he, Jesus, opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a quarter of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and wild beasts of the earth. Folks, I hope you understand this. The Bible says that that is coming to the whole earth now. In the near future, during the first half of the tribulation period, God is going to kill one quarter of all the people on the earth with sword, famine, diseases, and wild animals. Well, not if his people will pray. Do you see the foolishness of it? Do we really think that if we just pray, what God has already said is going to happen won't happen? God wouldn't be God. Let God be true and every man a liar. Oh, he's a merciful God. When David sinned with Bathsheba and they made that baby, and then Nathan the prophet, about a year after the baby's been born, comes and says, because of what you've done, God has determined already that this child is going to die. 
David, if you know, doesn't eat. He doesn't bathe. He falls on his face and he begs God for however many days it was that God would relent and not bring the judgment that he said he would bring. And then he hears his servants whispering in the hall and he realizes the child had died. And he gets up and he calmly says, draw me a bath, fix me something to eat. They said, we don't understand. While the baby was still alive, you were acting kind of nuts. We thought that when you heard the child died, you were going to lose it. And he said, actually, no, I just didn't know how God was going to respond. I thought perhaps he might hear, but he's done what he said he was going to do. The child won't come to me. I'll go to him. Do you see, we need to have an attitude that says, God, we ask for your mercy. God, we ask for your protection. God, we seek your hand because you're a good God. But we also need to keep in mind that God has said these things are going to happen to the whole world. If a nation acts faithlessly and turns against him and he decides that he's going to bring famine or he brings sword or he brings some kind of judgment through disease or whatever, if he's determined that he's going to do that, Moses, good luck. Samuel, good luck. Job, Daniel, Noah, good luck. Christian church in America, good luck. Yeah, no one can stay the hand of God. So what should be our attitude? It's an attitude of humble, it's humility that says, God, you are a merciful God and we seek your mercy. But God, you're also a God who has the right to do everything you say you'll do. And so whichever you choose will serve you. What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say when Nebuchadnezzar stood him in front of that fire and says, is your God able to rescue you? He said, they said, yes, our God is able. And whether he will or not, we don't know. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow down. And so, folks, keep this attitude in mind. Watch out for those who say, if we just do it, it'll be okay. No, but God does, God's word doesn't say that. Does that mean we shouldn't pray? No, we should pray. We should seek him. But we should let God be God. Go to chapter 15. Now, as we're about to read chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, let me give you a little heads up. I'm going to be reading about you and me. Oh, it's going to say Jerusalem, and it's going to say Israel. And, and it's meaning them, but you're going to see from Scripture. We're going somewhere. As you know me, I'm not one of these ones that think the church has replaced Israel and everything is all symbolic. And whatever it talks in the Old Testament, it's really talking about us. No, I'm not talking that way. This literally happened to the people of Israel, and God was describing them. But you'll see in a little bit tonight why I say he's also describing us, because there's a reason they, we are connected here. And in Ezekiel chapter 15, starting in verse 1, we'll read the whole chapter. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that's among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it and hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of, the, of it is charred, it's useful. is it useful for anything? Behold, when it, it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and, charred, and it is charred can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel... So have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will set my face against them, though they escape from the fire, 
the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. God asked this question here in chapter 15. And I'm going to ask you this question. What is what good is the wood of the vine? Now, when he talks about the vine, we're talking, you know, the vines that grow grapes or olives or whatever. What good is the wood of the vine? Is it better than any of the other wood of the trees of the forest? Can you build furniture out of the wood of the vine? No, he said you can't even make a peg out of it to hang something on. Like you just said, it's too flimsy. So what is the wood of the vine used for? For fire, to be burned. But there's something deeper here in this question that many of us might have missed. What was the purpose of the vine then? If it's only to be used to throw into the fire, is that all God made the vine for, to be burned? What was the purpose of the vine then? To produce fruit. If the vine's not producing fruit, what can you do with the vine? Throw it into the fire. Do you see where God's going with this question? He's saying, I'm not wrong in what I'm doing with you, Jerusalem, and the nation of Israel, because I wanted you to produce fruit. Yeah. So all there's left to do is to destroy you. So what I want to do tonight is I want to walk you through a study. It's kind of in-depth, somewhat brief, and show you from the Old Testament how God had described the nation of Israel as the vineyard and the vine. And it's going to go somewhere, which I can't wait to show you. Now, for the sake of time, write down Genesis chapter 49, um, verse uh, 22. Genesis uh, 49, verse 22, Joseph is described as a fruitful vine or a fruitful bough. But we'll, we'll go to Jeremiah chapter 2. Go to Jeremiah chapter 2 and look at verse 21. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21. God says, yet I planted you, speaking of Israel, a choice vine, holy of pure seed, how then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Let me read it to you again. God says to Israel, I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Some of you say, well, how do we know that's Israel? Well, then go over to Psalm chapter 80. Psalm chapter 80, look at verses 8 and 9. It says, you have brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. You see? Who's the vine that he brought out of Egypt and cleared the land for it so he could plant it in the land? It's Israel. Oh, but if you're still struggling with it, go to Isaiah chapter 5. Because as we go to Isaiah chapter 5, you're going to see that God, as in the passages we just saw, he took Israel out of Egypt, cleared the land of Israel, put them in it, and he planted them there for the purposes of producing fruit. But they weren't producing fruit. We saw that in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21. I planted you of pure, whole, pure seed, and 
you've made wild grapes. But listen to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Now I'm going to read this to you all the way through, and then I'm going to go back and read a couple of the first verses again, because I really want you to listen closely to what I read in Isaiah 5, because you're going to find it come alive to you in a little bit. In Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7, it says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I, that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its heads or remove its protection and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it waste a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. By the way, is there any question now who the vineyard is and who the vine is? It's Israel. It says so right here. For the vineyard of the Lord, verse 7, of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. But go back with me. I'm going to read to you again verses 1 and 2, because... I want you to get one and two in your head and in your heart because later on you're going to go, that's Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile, very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. Oh, he built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it or a wine press in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So what's he going to do then because of this vine, vineyard that he had planted in that beautiful place and that didn't produce the grapes that he was, or the fruit he was wanting? What's he going to have to do to it? Destroy it. I mean, because what good is the wood of the vine if there's no fruit? Can you make furniture with it? No. Can you make even a peg to hang something? No. It's to be burned. God says, I'm right in doing what I do. But go to Jeremiah chapter 12. Look at verses 7 through 13. God speaking, he says, I have, Jeremiah 12, verse 7, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me, therefore I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate but no man lays it to heart. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come. 
For the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh has peace. They have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out, but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvests because of the fierce anger of the Lord. So here, look at verse 10. He says, many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. Back in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 21, the scripture says this. The shepherds are senseless, some of your translations will say. Some of them say brutish. I love the ones that say the shepherds are stupid. They have not inquired of the Lord, and all their flock is scattered. Here God gives a further understanding of why this happened. The leadership in Israel, the kings, the prophets, the priests, they turned away from God and led the people to turn away from God. Because of that, he said, I have to destroy her. Now, that's what happened at the time of 580, 605 it began with the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar. Then in 597 there was another. And as you've been hearing, now they're prophesying, Ezekiel's prophesying about what's going to ultimately happen between 588 and 586 B.C. with the final destruction of Jerusalem and the king Zedekiah being blinded as he's taken out and captive and all this. And, but after the 70 years in Babylon, what does God do? He lets them go back and replants them in the land. Gives them another chance. How do they do? I mean, that batch of vines had to be cleaned out. It was, it was no good, and he had to clear the land and let it rest. But then he brought them back. But they still never fully turned to God. Oh, they might have cried out, as I told you to read in Nehemiah chapter 9, God, you were right in doing everything you did, but the people of Israel still didn't fully turn to God, and because of that, he kept them underneath the hand of other nations over and over and over. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, even though Israel is in the land again, and they have their temple, and they have some of their freedoms, if you will, are they in full control of their land with God as their leader? No, the Romans are the ones who are in charge. And Jesus continues the narrative. Go to Luke chapter 20. Look at verses 9 through 18. Luke chapter 20, verse 9, Jesus now says to the people of Israel in the land of Israel, and it says, And he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces 
and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So Jesus standing there in Jerusalem says, hey guys, let me just tell you the story. There was this guy, this owner of a vineyard, and uh, he lent it out to these people. He went away for a while, but he sent some of his servants to collect some of the fruit. They killed him or beat him, I mean, and then they sent another and beat him and another they treated shamefully. So he says, I'll, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. But when they see the son, they said, actually, this is the heir. If we kill him, this will be ours. And isn't that really the attitude of why they didn't want Jesus in the first place? If you remember, the leaders of Israel were saying, you know, we have no king but Caesar. Now, they really didn't think Caesar was king. But they were also saying, we don't want God to be our king either. We want it for ourselves. They actually knew what he was talking about. Their response was, surely not. But I want to take you a little bit deeper in this story to something God showed me in my study. I have been teaching on this passage for years, and I have taught that Jesus was saying that he was going to remove the people of Israel from the land and give the land to somebody else. Isn't that kind of how it reads? But I found out that I was wrong. Oh, yes, he did remove them from the land, and the land was given over to others for a time. That's what we're dealing with, this whole Palestinian-Israeli thing. But I want you to look closely at the wording. Actually, it'll help us if we go to Matthew's account. And I'm going to ask you a question. As you turn over to Matthew chapter 21... Is the vineyard the land, or is the vineyard the people? That's very important. You're right. See, for years I've read the vineyard is the land. No, the vineyard is the people. I took a vine out of Egypt. Did he take land out of Egypt? No, I cleared the space for the vine, and I planted a vineyard in Israel. And look closely at Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 43, in Matthew's account of this same parable. Oh, and listen closely. You may hear Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Does that sound familiar? Let me stop you for a second. For years, too many Christians have, because they haven't read the Old Testament, we just start in the Gospel of John and we just start reading the New Testament, but we really weren't taught the Bible. We have heard Jesus tell this parable and thought he was just, let me just come up with a story. But now you can see when Jesus tells this parable, he's quoting Isaiah 5. That's word for word quoting from Isaiah 5. Listen to what he says. There was a master who had, of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And then when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, he, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And look, at they're the ones that answer. They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death. And let out the vineyard to other tenants 
who will give him the fruits in their season. The vineyard's going to go to somebody else, but it's not the land. Go to verse chapter next verse 42, chapter 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Jesus has been talking about this vineyard and he changes it and says the kingdom of God is now going to be given to a people producing its fruits. Was the vineyard given to the Palestinians? No. Who was the vineyard given to? I heard it over here. The church. Israel was the vineyard. They were given opportunity. They didn't produce the fruit. He moved them from the land, put them back in, gave them more opportunity. But because of this obedience and the killing of his son, he said, I'm going to give the vineyard, the kingdom of God, to a people that will produce the fruit. Stick with me. I'm not saying the church has replaced Israel forever. But all of a sudden now, with this study of the vineyard and the vines and all this, Go with me to John chapter 15 and tell me that John does, chapter 15 doesn't all of a sudden read totally different. John chapter 15, look at verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to jump to verse 16. John chapter 15, Jesus has already said now, the vineyard's going to be given to others who will produce its fruit, and the kingdom of God's going to be given to the people who will produce the fruit. And Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener, the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And I'll come back to that in a little bit. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it'll bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Go to verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You see it? He said, Israel, you were a choice vine, planted of pure seed, but you produce wild grapes. Because of that, I had to remove you and burn you. Some were spared, and of those that were spared, I took those branches, replanted it, didn't do it. So so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to give the vineyard responsibility, the producing of fruit, to a people who will produce the fruit. And Jesus says to the believers, the beginning of the church age, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You abide in me and my words abide in you, you're going to produce fruit. Now, let me 
ask you a really hard question. I'm going to tell you it's hard, but the answer is really cool. Who actually deeply theologically is the vineyard right now? Say it. Listen closely. Yes, we are in the sense that we're connected to Jesus, but the vineyard, the true vine, is Jesus himself. If we're not connected to Jesus, we're not part of the vineyard. It is, well, look at what he said. I am the true vine. Unless you abide in me and my words abide in you, apart from me, you can do nothing. But when you produce fruit, it will prove that you're in me. Did you see it? Yes, the church is the vineyard. Don't misunderstand me. The church is the vineyard right now and the one he's wanting to produce his fruit through. But ultimately, folks, it has to be Jesus himself because it's Jesus that produces his fruit. Now I'm going to ask you another tough question. What is the fruit that he's looking for? I mean, if he's going to examine us for fruit, what is the fruit that he's looking for? And some of you might have been taught something that the Bible really doesn't fully teach. The more believers is what we've been taught, and that's not the fruit. I'm sorry? Obedience is good, but how are we going to recognize the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Remember Galatians chapter 5? Folks, if you've got to understand progressive revelation, that's why we need to learn the whole book. Because little by little, God gives us more of the picture and more of the picture and more of the picture. And we've been seeing the vine and the vineyard and the fruit and how Israel is rejected for a time. And, and then the church has been given this responsibility, but it's really through Jesus. And then the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, faithfulness. All these things are the evidence of Jesus in us. Listen closely. Yes, People will come to know Jesus through that. But Jesus said, I will build my church. He didn't ask us to go out and build the church. He didn't ask us to go out and make believers. He actually tells us to just command them everything he's taught. We're to disciple. But all through this passage, he's saying it over and over and over. I skipped over the verses, so maybe you missed it. Go, go back to verse 8. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples or connected to me. Now, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you're my friends if you do what I command. And no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. And you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide. And that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you'll what? So what is he asking of us? He says, look, I want you to receive my love and just abide in that love. And when you really drink of the love that I have, I referenced it in my prayer tonight. 
But God's really been showing me in his word that in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Yet, you wives who have just had Valentine's Day, I showed my wife Becky an amazing Valentine's Day because right before Bible study, I took her to Wendy's. And, and uh, <laughs> as much as you wives love the, the act of demonstration of love on that day, you would all say, as much as I love the big teddy bear or the chocolate boxes of candies or the roses, I would rather he demonstrate his love the rest of the year, correct? Listen closely again. God demonstrated on a certain day his love for us on the cross, correct? But the Bible says just prior to that in Romans chapter 5, verse, eight, verse, verse 5, but his love has been poured out into our hearts the Holy Spirit that he's given us. Jesus in John chapter 14 says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. And when I come to you and I'll be in you, I'm with you, but I'm going to be in you. And when I'm in you, you're going to know that I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in the Father. And, and then he goes on and says, and the Holy Spirit, the helper, he's going to teach you, he's going to guide you. Folks, what did God want from Israel all along? He just said, I just want you to walk with me. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to give you commandments. I'm going to put you in situations where you have to turn to me. And my solution, like manna and other things, are going to be not like how it was before because I want you to learn that man doesn't live by bread alone or by the latest situation getting solved, but by every word that comes from me. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. What does the Lord require? What does he want? Does he want me to give a sacrifice of so many rivers of oil or 10,000 rams or the firstborn of my body, the, the firstborn of my body for the sin of my soul? What does he want? And he's shown you, oh man, what he wants. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? All along, it's been a relationship of trusting God and his provision for their sin. That's what the sacrificial system was pointing to. And ultimately in Jesus, he just said, I want you to walk with me. And all he's told us as the church, as the vineyard thou, but the real vine is Jesus. The vineyard's really Jesus. It's just where the branches. All he's asking of us is that we would just walk with him. And when we do, the evidence that we're really walking with Jesus is not that we have a church membership card. Or a piece of paper that says we were baptized on a certain day. It actually says in Romans chapter 8, I think it's verse 16, and those who are led of the Spirit are the children of God. That's kind of key. Not those who say they have the Spirit. Those who are led of the Spirit are the children of God. And when we walk with him and his love is being poured out into our hearts every single day through the Holy Spirit that he's given to us, and if the love of the Lord is being poured out on a daily basis and you don't have it, what's the problem? Either you're not in him or you have him in you and you're not drinking. If it's being poured out, stick your cup out. Stick your cup out daily. Say, Lord, I want you to do in me Evidence that I'm in you. We get so focused on God doing stuff through us. I'm starting to realize all through the scriptures, God's more interested in doing something in us. Oh, and guess what? When we actually walk with him in the abiding relationship, and that vine branch relationship is tight, and love, and joy, peace, patience, and gentleness, 
is just naturally how we react, others are going to come to know him because they're going to be drawn to him. We don't have to go out and work for Jesus and produce fruit. Years ago, when I was a young preacher, I used to preach on Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and following, and I preached a whole series on how to be more patient and how to be more loving. And God the whole time was saying, no, I'm the one being patient as I listen to this horrible theology that you're trying to teach people how to go do what only I can do. Go back to John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine. He's the only one who could do what the Father required. He's the only one. I'm the true vine. And my Father's the gardener, the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, my translation in the ESV says he takes away. Most translations read it as taking away. NIV even says cuts off. But I'm going to throw another translation out to you because I can prove it. I don't have time to go there. But I can, if you were to take this Greek word translated takes away, it's the Greek word arrow, A-I-R-O, and it's also translated in two other places in the New Testament as picks up. All right? In Matthew chapter 14, verse 20, where Jesus has just fed the 5,000, the Bible says the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. The picked up is the Greek word arrow. Also, you'll see in, in uh, the place, Matthew chapter 27, verse uh, 31, where Jesus is carrying his cross and he falls. And they forced a man named Simon to carry, that's that same word, carry. It's a picture of picking up his cross. That's the same word here. And I don't believe Jesus' first words when he's teaching them about the abiding relationship were, if you're not producing fruit, you're out. He does say that coming up real soon. But if you know anything about growing grapes, if a branch grows down along the ground, it gets muddy and dirty and it won't produce grapes. But if you're a good gardener or vine dresser, you're going to pick it up, you're going to wash it off and cleanse it, and you're going to tie it to the trellis so that it gets air and sunlight. I think Jesus says, if you're in me and you're not producing fruit, I'm going to pick you up. And if you are producing fruit, I'm going to prune you. And that word in the Greek in the prune has a sense of cleansing as well. So you produce more fruit. And then he goes on and says, and you're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now, if you're a branch, though, that's not going to produce fruit, those are the ones that aren't really connected, and they're going to be cut off, and they're going to, they're going to wither, and they're going to be thrown into the fire. So my challenge to you folks is this. Let Jesus do in you what he wants to do Stop worrying so much about having him do through you what he wants to do. If he's allowed to do in you what he wants to do, the through you takes care of itself. You understand? Now, in the eight minutes that we have left, go with me to Romans chapter 11, because I want to show you that um, God's not done with Israel. They have another opportunity to be the vineyard again. It's coming. It's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period. Paul has been dealing with this whole issue in chapters 9, 10, and 11. But when he gets to chapter 11, he asks this question. And he says, is God done with Israel? And he says, no. Is God done with Israel? No. Go to verse 13 of Romans 11. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles and as much then that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. He says, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if the rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Boy, doesn't that take, make you feel good? Because who's the vine and who's the branch? If the root's holy and you're in Christ, you're holy. 
But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you'll say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off, though, because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, the Jews, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, don't think for a second he says you're going to lose your salvation. Remember, why were they cut off? Because of, we just read it, unbelief. They were cut off because of unbelief. The only reason anybody would be cut off is because of unbelief. And the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and following, he said the Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have come, and this shows that we're in the last days. And he said they went out from us, but they weren't really of us. Because if they were of us, they would have stayed, but their going out shows that they really weren't of us. All through the scriptures in the New Testament, Paul says warnings, and the book of Hebrews says warnings about the difference between those who claim that they're in Christ and those who actually are. And the only real evidence of whether or not someone's truly in Christ or not is over time whether or not they stick. And there's going to be those who walk away in unbelief. They're going to be cut off, but they never really were connected. Because Jesus himself said, I will lose none that the Father has given to me. But look what he says in verse 14. But if you were cut off, actually, I'm back up to verse 23. And even if they do not continue, meaning the Jews in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree... How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. What's left of Israel at the end of the tribulation period that amount of Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Well, that's a good one too, isn't it? Is salvation a gift? It's irrevocable. But what about those who were cut off? They never had it. They never received it. Go to Isaiah 27. This will be our last passage for tonight. <clears throat> the same Isaiah that told about how God was going to judge Israel because of their rejection of him and their wild fruit that wasn't his fruit. Later on, God speaks to that same prophet Isaiah in chapter 27 about the day when God is going to replant the vineyard Israel in the land. In chapter 27, verse 1, in that day, remember those are prophecy words that are talking about the very end. In that day, I love this, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Does that sound familiar, you guys who studied Revelation with us? Who's the dragon out of the sea? It's the Antichrist. But who is the one who empowers the beast out of the sea? 
Satan, who's the dragon. Oh, by the way, back in Job, when Job said, I wish I could have a face to face with God. And God shows up in chapter 38 and says, hey, I understand you want to have a talk with me. I'd love to let you ask any question you want. Tell you what, let me ask a couple quick ones. Then you can ask anything you want. And then God goes on for four chapters and says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? How, where's the snow stored? And who determines how far the ocean stops? And all this. And then when he gets to chapter 40, he, he then talks about this animal that existed at the time during Job's day that no human could even touch. And it was an animal that God had created that represented Satan, but no human could touch it. And it was called Leviathan. Actually, if you were to look in the book of Psalms, you'll see that the scripture says that God will kill the heads, plural, of Leviathan. And don't we see in the book of Revelation that the dragon had seven heads, ten horns? There was a seven-headed, fire-breathing dragon on the earth in the time of Job prior to the flood. Guess what? Where did we get all these myths about fire-breathing dragons throughout history? There was one, and the Bible tells us, and God had made an animal that represented Satan and describes him at the very end of chapter 40, and he's father of all who are proud. Most of our study Bibles, if you go to Job and read about Leviathan, it'll say in our notes at the bottom, possibly a crocodile. No! The crocodile hunter would tackle crocodiles by himself. This thing was so big, it said that its tail made the oceans turn foamy white. It was a huge, fire-breathing animal that represented Satan that no human could touch. But God killed it. And in that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I love this part. I have no wrath. Would that I have thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Again, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Do you see it? God's not done with Israel. He's going to replant them in the land. And in that day, he'll take away their sin. He'll banish godlessness from Jacob. He'll be their God. They'll be his people. It's going to be an amazing time. But for now, we don't want you to be ignorant. Like most of Christians, unfortunately. Israel's experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. But when the church age is over and he takes his bride to be with him, He's going to deal with that time period called the seven-year period of tribulation or time of Jacob's trouble. And he's going to purify the nation of Israel through that. And the ones who survive are going to be all saved. And he's going to plant them back in the land. And they're going to fill the earth with their fruit. We're going to be here on that day as well as he comes back and sets up his kingdom. Kind of cool, isn't it? All that from just eight verses in chapter 15 that say, what good is the vine, the wood of the vine? But if we let the scriptures speak, we'll see how it all just comes together. 
And I love you. And I will see you in two weeks, Lord willing, because there's no Bible study next week. And we'll be in chapter 16. Thanks for coming.